Welcome to Know Your Risk and Insurance Coverage with Risk ProNet, where we will discuss all things insurance for you and your company. Risk ProNet is a network of independent agencies who offer specialized insurance across business sectors. Regardless of where you are in your insurance journey, we want to invite you to join us to think about insurance differently. Know your risk and insurance coverage with Risk ProNet provides answers to all your insurance questions. Today, I'm joined with Kyle Rogers, or joined by Kyle Rogers and Pat Mullins from JKJ, which is one of our member agencies in Philadelphia. They do a lot of exciting stuff as an agency that we've interacted with a lot. They're unique in that their average account size is much greater than the majority of uh, Risk ProNet members that we have, and it does allow them, I think, some advantages when we're talking about things. But today, uh, both Kyle and Pat are partners at JKJ, and we're going to talk about perpetuation, and again, what Risk ProNet's all about, independent agencies. And so, Kyle, Pat, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Chip, thanks for having us. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to catch you, catch up with you guys. And let's just jump right into it. There's a, you know, this idea of perpetuation and mergers and acquisitions and what are agencies doing to be able to stay independent? What do you need to do? And I know managing your equity is a big piece of that. JKJ's, I think, is unique in that they've done a very good job and a lot of the concepts you guys have talked to the members about, I know other firms have incorporated into their perpetuation practices. Can you tell us a little bit about JKJ and your perpetuation model? Yeah, Chip, I'll start and uh, turn it over to Kyle when I'm done because Kyle, in his role, which Kyle serves as, a, as a, is not only a partner of JKJ, but also our CFO, so he handles a lot of the financial side for us, which is critical if we're going to continue to remain independent and have the ability to perpetuate, we have to be um, proactive with that process. We can't wait until the end and say, oh, I wish we could stay independent. It's got to be a plan 10, 15, 20 years in place. And really, it all stems from, you know, our partners, current partner uh, of ours, Bruce White, but also before him, John Wright and Dick Willis. When I started at JKJ 22 years ago, they were already talking about, we're going to stay independent. You are the future owners of JKJ. You are the future leaders of JKJ. And this was before we had the phenomenon of aggregators and consolidation and all brokers getting acquired. We were ahead of the game. And I think it gave us an advantage to be planning that early for what we're experiencing today. I think that's a great point that gets overlooked today. No one would have dreamed that these valuations for these firms would have been here when their dad or their grandfather started an insurance agency, right? This this phenomenon that we're all going through, no one anticipated it. And I think to have that foresight so many years ago is really critical. And again, I don't believe anybody would have thought this would have turned into the lucrative opportunity that it's become. And you bring up a good point because um, some people look at us like we're crazy when you look at the multipliers and the valuations that are out there. But it, it is something we have believed in. And the way we've been able to do that is we have, we have been investing in producers from before I started. So we have a college mentoring program where we look to hire someone out of college 
we give them a long runway. The first two years is a mentoring program. There's zero sales slash revenue expectations of that individual. We want them to learn about the insurance industry, learn how JKJ does business. As you mentioned, we tend to work with larger, more sophisticated accounts. So that takes time to to be up to speed and be able to work on those type of accounts. But that process, I, when I started 22, 22 years ago out of college, the process was learn, develop, and become a future owner slash leader. And, and we're constantly doing that and bringing new people in. In order to continue to perpetuate, our valuation still goes up. So we're going to need more and more buyers and acquirers within JKJ as we continue to grow and become larger in scale. So this investment that we have in producers and the training and mentoring is critical. Well, I think that investment piece is one that gets overlooked, right? And if you weren't, if you aren't committed to it as an agency at some level and know that you're going to be repouring really significant dollars back into your business to make it more valuable in the future, it's kind of hard to pull that trigger and just start going, right? You have to have a core philosophy. And so I look forward to hearing what Kyle has to say about that and how you guys plan for it. Absolutely. Thanks, Pat. And thanks, Chip. I think one of the most important pieces of this perpetuation plan is, is really setting up a framework for what um, we need to do. And I think there's four key components. I think the first one is, which would be true for any organization, you need to have a healthy financial operation. Uh, when you have that, then you need to have reasonable sellers. And we work with a firm called Reganin Associates. So they help us every year perform a evaluation exercise where we set our stock price. And then we have a shareholders agreement, which also dictates the, the sale of shares for partners. So, you know, that kind of sets the stage for the reasonable sellers piece. Then the third piece is you need able buyers, which through development of producers and other key leaders, we have that. And then the fourth piece is really transfer mechanisms in which we can exchange shares and, and transfer ownership. And um, there's two key components to that for us. The one is our ESOP. Our ESOP is actually our largest shareholder. So we are constantly funding our plan, even in years where we have no nobody retiring or leaving in which we'd have to pay them out. Um, so, so funding the plan and then managing our repurchase obligations. And then the second transfer mechanism is for the non-ESOP stuff. And we've partnered with one of our key vendors to set up shareholder loans. So from a cash flow standpoint, it helps our buyers purchase the stock uh, without providing too much of a stressor. So I, th I think it's really important to kind of set up the framework for hey, how are we going to do this perpetuation thing? Because we know it's not hard, or we know it's hard. It's not going to be easy. And, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of investment. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a commitment to it that started back with John, right? And so you must have a culture then that's built around this idea that we're going to be healthy financially, but we're, we're not going to run at this. There must be a greed element that's pulled out of this equation that allows us to be successful. Do you guys talk about that at all? Absolutely. I think one of the, the key strategies to this working is if anyone thinks that we're any individuals going to make the most amount of money and we're going to perpetuate, the optics just don't work. You know, we see how uh, external valuations and M&A deals are, and it's just the multiples are too high. So 
in working with Reagan, we're able to come up with a methodology that is fair, but also doesn't stress the company too much to where individuals would not be able to buy shares and become new partners. And then the whole model is flipped upside down and we stop being who we are. So there is certainly an understanding by everyone involved here. And it's something we talk about a lot that there is a piece that everyone's going to sacrifice in terms of not getting top dollar as far as what the external market looks like. And Chip, it continues to evolve, right? So I look at myself, the, you know, Bruce and John were the majority owners and they made the decision that they're going to share ownership, right? That's, that's how it has to happen. The, the, the leaders and the larger shareholders have to make a decision that they want to share that. And then as, the, as myself and others have gotten opportunities for ownership, it's up to us that we now have to share ownership, right? Someone did it for us. It's our obligation to do it for others, right? So you continue to pass that down. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, the you got to pass it down to more people. So we always discuss internally. So at 65, you have to sell your shares. That's in our shareholder agreement. And Bruce White right now is the largest single shareholder. But there's no way we can continue to perpetuate and have someone else own as much as Bruce once he's gone. However, and as we explain to everyone internally, the smaller percentage you have more than likely is going to be worth as much, if not more than Bruce's percentage when he retired, because we continue to grow and the stock price continues to rise. So having an understanding of that and not being caught up with, how much percentage I own, that really changes the conversation and people get in and go, yeah, I'm in it for the good of the organization. And oh, by the way, I will still make money even at my smaller share. So do you spend a lot of time then with the new acquiring shareholders, making sure they understand it? And do you think there's anything that's different generationally as you're bringing younger people on and maybe how they want to be communicated to versus Pat or Kyle, when you were 15 years ago told what was going to happen and maybe you just trusted the process because you saw the guys above you had done it and you believed in it. Is there, are you seeing any generational notices that you could share? Chip, have you been in our office? Have you been spying <laughs> no, on No, but, but, I, <laughs> but I have a suspicion that it's not unique to uh, Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I'll chime in and I'll let Kyle. It, it's something we need to do a better job with. We need to continue to educate, continue to communicate your comment of, hey, the others did it and I saw them doing it, so I must do it. Don't get me wrong. Some get it, but but others may not as much as we thought or expected. So that is a constant education that we have to do a better job of teaching them the process and why that process is important. And Kyle, please chime in on your thoughts. Pat, I agree. I, th I think we've started that process a bit too. We've been more intentional, especially as we've expanded the ownership group of having shareholder meetings where we, you know, not only talk about financials, but really the, the issues that we face in regards to perpetuation. So, and that's been a newer exercise. I think we had new eight shareholders in the past year. So I think it's just something that we'll continue to expand on and, and discuss at those meetings. I, yeah, I think I, I do think it's an interesting phenomenon and it makes sense. Communication is different, different generations. And 
we're angling for more transparency across the platform and what we do as well. And it sounds like you may be doing the same. And I think that's a good thing, right? If you understand it, you can move forward. And if there's a culture that's in place, it allows it to be successful. And it's obviously worked for JKJ. If you had some advice for somebody who says, hey, I'm a 60, 70, 80% shareholder of my firm, maybe more, and I got to figure out a way to perpetuate this thing, is it too late if you haven't started up by now? Do you have any opinion on that? I don't think it is. Um, I, you know, I, th- I think there has to be a belief that attracting top producers to your firm and retaining them by the op- by having the opportunity for ownership is going to ultimately build your wealth versus trying to keep the percentage more for yourself hiring producers that are not partners and maybe they're not vested or maybe they don't stay the investment i truly believe does pay off by allowing people the opportunity to become owners and I think you end up increasing your value of your firm and your stock exponentially as a result of that. And I don't think it's ever too late to start that. I think that's well said. And I think that's a philosophy that most risk pronet members share as well in terms of staying independent, growing our value, growing the firms and being able to, you know, provide something for something that was provided for us, right? I think there's a core belief amongst the members um, passing it along, so to speak. And Chip, uh, one thing that is, has helped us along the way, and just to give a plug, is we joined an organization called the Tugboat Institute. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. No, I haven't. The Tugboat Institute. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, so it's, it's a group of companies across all industries that are committed to being independent. So we, there's a CEO group that meets two or three times a year. There's a larger group that meets once or twice a year. And the focus is how do we stay independent? What are the, you know, the trials and tribulations that you go through? How can we assist one another? They have a certification process called um, a certified evergreen company. So every couple of years, we go through an audit that Kyle runs with. And the audit basically says, do you have the policies, procedures, culture, et cetera, to theoretically remain independent for the next hundred years? And it's just great to be around companies that share in that same philosophy and go through the same struggles that we go through. So it, it's, it's been very helpful for us, and especially learning from people in other industries too, right? We, we get kind of in our little sandbox and not think outside and it allows us to hear fresh ideas from others as well. So it's been very helpful, the Tugboat Institute. Well, that's good to hear. That's a good plug. We'll put some in the show notes there. Might be a good member to have at one of our meetings as well. That's a great idea. So how often do you guys work on culture then? Is, cult- is culture intentional about what you're trying to build around perpetuation? Do you feel like between Pat, yourself, and Kyle that you put a lot of time into culture? Or do you feel like the culture JKJ is established and you're just reinforcing it and you're not maybe not being delivered, but it is being disseminated. What's your thoughts on perpetuating this culture that you guys have created? I think with culture, it's something that you try and lead through example. We certainly have an established culture that I think has served 
JKJ and our clients very well, but it's something that you also always want to evolve. And um, some of the newer generations can certainly bring, you know, new flavors to the table that, that we can all adapt to and, and try and improve ourselves. So while we do have a, a, a very strong culture, I think it's something that's that's ever evolving. Chip, the line I use is is we are formally informal. So anyone that starts a career at JKJ, we tell them there's there's no set career path. There is not you're in this position from one to three years, then you move this from three to six years and so on. You have the opportunity to build your career and create opportunities for yourself within the organization. Now it has to fall into is it helping JKJ from a client service perspective? Is it helping JKJ from a revenue perspective? Is it helping the culture and the employees within JKJ? It has to fit one of those boxes, but we really empower people to expand their career within the organization. And that, I think, helps build the culture that they feel like, hey, I matter and I have opportunities here to make a difference. I like that. Seems like there's a lot of entrepreneurship involved for the people that join the firm within the framework that you guys have created. People must be knocking down the door uh, to work there. How are you doing with finding producers? And and I know you have some unique things that's available to you with uh, insurance being a big part of some of the universities in town in Philadelphia. But, but to be able to uh, take that long-term view, so many firms, I think, struggle with do I just get on the churn and burn with new producers to make them successful? Or do I invest all the resources for a two-year period of time, not knowing if it's going to work out? Obviously, that has worked for you guys, but I think you're probably in the minority on taking that long-term approach. Do you have an opinion on that? We are in the minority. We've, we've, we've tweaked and we've changed somewhat. So it used to be college mentoring program, hire someone out of college, train them for two years. We've now started a, a real robust internship program that we're trying to identify rising seniors for a 10-week internship and use it almost as a 10-week interview to see, do we think this person could become a successful salesperson? So it gives us a little glimpse on their potential before hiring them full-time. And as committed as we continue to be on the college mentoring program, we have expanded to someone in another sales job for two to six years and transition them into the insurance industry. So it's kind of become a blend, but constantly, uh, Kyle mentioned Reagan, they have metrics on if you're going to be a growth firm, how many producers you have to have in development at any one given time. So we really focus on that and, and always have right now, I think we have maybe close to six producers in development at various levels and, and knock on wood, they're, they're all hitting metrics and they all have a great potential to succeed within JKJ. That's wonderful. So Kyle, what percentage of your budget is geared towards this? Does it must go up every year? Is it something you monitor or is it just, or how closely do you financially monitor this investment? It's something we pay very close attention to. Um, again, it's one of those things that in working with Reagan, they have various metrics that, that we pay close attention to. Producer development is one of them. So as a percentage of revenue, you know, we're looking to, to hit that benchmark. 
And it's really going to be critical to our model because, hey, all of our top producers now will continue to produce. But if we're making the proper investment and then getting those newer producers validated, they're going to help drive that growth three, five, 10 years down the road. And in doing so, they're also creating new buyers. So we realize that it's something that we have to continue to do. Otherwise, this model doesn't work. You have to constantly create new buyers as you're growing. And and the investment in the producer role does that for us. Well, you guys have a great story. I know that for a fact. Is there any, any other items around perpetuation that you think it's important for the audience to hear that we didn't touch on? I, I would just say we have a great time doing it. It's it's a lot of fun, the ability to build an organization and and careers and then allowing others the opportunity for ownership. It's it's one of the best parts of, of our roles, and um, we have fun doing it. Uh, just to add to that, I think having an ESOP is something that we've been very intentional about. I know I touched on that earlier, but – It allows us to share in the growth um, and success of the company with not just outside ESOP owners, but every employee here that helped drive value and deliver value to our clients. So that's that's something that we are very proud of, and we you know continue to plan to have that be part of uh, of our our perpetuation strategies. Yeah, I like that. I know there. I know ESOPs. They're all over the board these days, but it sounds like it's worked really well for your program and doesn't hinder you at all. So that's super. So it's good to hear. Well, I appreciate you guys sharing a little bit about your thoughts on it. Your note, your names and contact information will be in the show notes. And as a member agency within Risk ProNet, this is the type of resources that you have available at your fingertips to call and ask ideas about. And so, again, I think that's the best part of our membership in Risk ProNet is having a group of peers that have knowledge on it, something you want to know about, and you can really learn about it and get deep into it with those individuals. So thanks for being on the show today, and thanks for your comments and be willing to participate and help other people. So we'll look forward to seeing you guys soon. Chip, thanks for having us. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Chip. Appreciate it. See you guys later. Also, just so the audience knows, both these guys are pretty humble guys. If I told you what they really do, you wouldn't believe it. So it's, it's a testament to their culture as well. So see you guys later. Thanks, Chip. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Know Your Risk and Insurance Coverage with Risk ProNet. For more information about Risk ProNet, please visit our website. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter for insurance insights. From everyone at Risk ProNet, we want to say thank you for tuning in and see you next time.